It's just beautiful to see somebody like her filled with the Holy Ghost and sharing the good news. So I present to you, Sister Pete. Praise the Lord. Yesterday we had a good time when we rejoiced and we laughed in God. And uh, today I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit because I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, first of all, I certainly want to thank uh, Sister and Brother McLean for allowing me to do this. Uh, Sister McLean is responsible, I think, for, for getting me into this uh, whole field. And, uh, and because when my mother was uh, diagnosed with cancer, I knew that I was going to have to go home. And I knew I'd probably be home a long time, or at least I anticipated it. And uh, I was praying because I was so scared I would never get back to Texas. So I asked God at that time if he could give me a sign to let him know. I said, God, I don't care how long I go home. I want to be with my mother, but uh, especially in her last days. But just give me a sign that I'll get back to Texas. And uh, Sister McLean um, came up. And now at any other time, I would have said uh, uh, no to her, you know. I mean, but uh, since I was asking for a sign for God that I would get back to Texas uh, and uh, to my church and everything, uh, and she asked me if I would speak at a singles meeting. Uh, I would have never done that. I was like, no way. <laughs> but uh, when she asked me that day, I knew that God had answered my prayer and that he was saying to me, uh, and that was set for October, and so I believe it was October, and, she, and I knew that God was saying, you'll make it back. And uh, uh, now it didn't even have to work out that way. My mother died in May of uh, 1985, but, uh, uh, but I knew that God had answered that request, that even though I was going to go home, that I would be coming back. And that was... Uh, that was a treat, and then for me, <clears throat> that God answered that prayer, so and here I am doing this today. So, uh, of course, any time Sister McLean would ask me, I'll do anything she wants me to do, um, and certainly to try to, to minister to you. I wanted to uh, today preface what I'm going to say. I'm not going to talk very long, because I'm hoping that God will move in our midst today. And uh, I wanted to read from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 13, and uh, beginning with at least 13. And um, it says, uh, Therefore my people are gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself, and opened her mouth without measure. And their glory and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoices, rejoiceth shall descend into it. And I just want you to keep in the back of your mind, therefore hell hath enlarged herself. You know, we all want to be <clears throat> motivated. We love to be motivated. We love to be uh, just, just somebody to get us on fire. Uh, when the person comes up here to lead song service, they're saying, come on, clap your hands, you know. And uh, there are motivators. There are cheerleaders. We're trying to get, the, you know, get us into the spirit of God, kind of trying to uh, let go of the cares of the world. And all of a sudden, here we are. You know, we're worshiping, praising God, and we're getting into the spirit. And, and then we start to feel the spirit of God more, and it just adds to and adds to. Well, I, but I have found that there are two types of motivation. Everybody say two. Types. All right, there are two types of motivation. You can be externally motivated. Everybody say external. Or you can be internally motivated. Say internal. Now, if you and both work very well, but one happens to be better than the other. See, if you are externally motivated, then you're motivated from without. That means something from without, you know, is motivating you, making you want to do it. Like an alarm clock. You set the alarm clock at night, and it, it externally motivates you to get up in the morning. 
Now, some of us go over to the snooze button and push that off, and we don't uh, respond to the external motivation right away, like me. <laughs> I am not a morning person. <laughs> but um, the, the bottom line is that's an external motivation. Uh, you have things like Mother's Memorial, and you have uh, making uh, peanut brittle, and you have bake sales, and, and uh, you sell dinners, and you collect money, and you have fundraisers, and uh, all of that. That's all externally motivated. Somebody's doing something, they're pumping you up, you go, uh, you know, that's external motivation. And that's good, and it lasts only for a short time. As long as the motivation is there, it'll last. Once you take the motivation away, once the dinner's finished, where's the motivation? There isn't. There's no need for it anymore. You finish the bake sale, it's over with. Until, of course, till the next one. But when you're internally motiv motivated, there is something with inside you that motivates you. You don't need a band on the outside. You don't, you don't need somebody honking horns. You don't need somebody applauding you as you go along, patting you on the back. There's something internal that comes from within here that motivates you to do what you need to do. And so that motivation could be, internal motivation could be a desire. It could be a need, like Sister Yvonne was talking about today, about when you're praying for something. You know, who, who motivates you to pray? You know, you don't have wake up and, and all of a sudden find 30 women in your living room. Okay, come on, Yvonne, get down here and pray. Come on, Jesus, pray. You know, you know, if you did, you'd wonder how they got in your house. You'd be a little worried there, see? So you don't have any. So what makes you, motivates you to pray? You, when's the last time somebody motivated you to fast? You know, outside of being, certainly the preacher tells you to, but you know what I'm saying? When you're out there at the, the restaurants and the dinners, other people are, are eating and, and you're fasting, you're pushing away the plate. What is it that motivates you to say no to that meal? It's something on the inside. There's a need, there's a desire, there's a drive that you have. And that kind of internal motivators come from your heart. And they last a lifetime. If you have an unsaved loved one, you don't need to be motivated by uh, pepped up uh, talks. You just have to start thinking about that loved one. And, and you will fall to your knees in prayer, and you will be bombarding heaven and petitioning God to save my lost loved one, to save my children, God. To keep, do you have to be motivated to pay, pray, pray prayers of protection upon your children? No, you don't have to be motivated, but there's something in your heart that says, I need to do this, I want to do this. So there's a calling away, there's a drawing away, and you find yourself someplace off in a room, and you find yourself reading the Word of God and praying. Those are internal motivators. And when we live for God, our motivation should be internal. There should be something deep within inside of us that speaks to us wanting to live for God. You know, I, I, I've uh, received the Holy Ghost on May 4th, 1980. That's uh, 18 years. I can't believe 18 years. That just blows my mind. 18 years. And uh, I'm, I'm motivated to live for God. And, and, and I've gone through some valleys, uh, and, not, and God has blessed me. I, I really have. I, you know, and I, and I guess he knows that I'd just be a big chicken. I, and I, I don't want to go through some of those big hard trials that some of you have been through. But, uh, but even the little ones that I have been through, you know, uh, what, what motivates us to stay to, to, with God and to live with God? What, what motivates us to get up and certainly go to church? And to, What motivates us to work for God? It's that internal stuff. It's that internal stuff. You love Sister McLean, your pastor, or you love your own pastor's wife, but, you know, there are some times that even that alone, just because you love them, you don't always feel like doing it. But when you love God and you love the work of God, then all of a sudden, you, you know, that rises above your own flesh, and then you'll do what you need to do because it's an internal motivator. And you give. 
You know, you give money as the offering pans go by. For Mother's Memorial, let's give, let's give, let's give. And you'll take money out of your pocket and you'll give. And sometimes you'll give a sacrificial offering. You don't have it. It's the last few dollars that you have. And all of a sudden, you know, God will bless it. I remember a story, a beautiful story. I hope I can tell it. I always get choked up when I tell it. But um, I was going home one Christmas. It was the Christmas of 1984. And uh, I had less money. I was a teacher, uh, not teacher, special ed counselor of the school district. I had less money to go home with than I'd ever gone home with before. And I, I'm not extravagant. And um, so I only had $125. And I had $5 in my purse. And I went to church. And Brother McFarlane was, uh, was there helping us at the time. And he was up there and he's saying, Okay, I want you to give now because you know when we give. Oh, I'm telling you, God, will just bless it and multiply it. It'll be pressed down, shaken together, running over. And this little voice spoke to me and said, Give me the $5. Now, I hadn't even bought any Christmas gifts for seven people when I went home. $120 divided by seven didn't leave you very much. And I said, no, I ain't giving it. In church, I'm having this mental dialogue with God. I'm not, no, I'm not giving it. I said, that's five bucks, Lord. I said, I am not giving it. I said, I haven't even bought any Christmas presents. And he said, give me, give me the $5. I said, God, I am going home tomorrow on the plane. Now, you know, what can you do? He said, just watch. I said, what can you do between now and tomorrow morning? How are you going to multiply this? Press down, run them together, shaking over. Come on, come on. I mean, really. <laughs> you know. So um, he said, uh, just give it and watch what I do. So, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. And I said, well, okay. So, <laughs> so I was cheerful, you know. That offering paying him back, I took that $5 and... And I threw it in there. I mean, what was $5 going to be? I mean, more or less, right? So uh, I was leaving uh, the church that night, and I thought, well, this is great. Now, how he's going to, you know, all right, well, $5, so what? So I go up to Brother Green, you know, and uh, I look at him, and I say, Brother Green, I'm leaving on a plane tomorrow, going home for Christmas and everything, and I guess I'll be back after New Year's. You all have a nice Christmas and New Year's. And, of course, it was tough for me to go home. I mean, I love to go home, you understand? But it was tough for me to be away. You know, I wanted to be both places at the same time. And I had never received communion in my church. I had never been to foot washing for, you know, and, and all those years. And I'd missed all that. And so there, I, was, I was torn between my love for my family and my love for my church family. And, uh, but um, I, I was going home. And so I, he didn't know about my financial situation. And uh, Brother Green has a tendency, you know, he's got these eyes. <laughs> you know? Well... I don't know if Brother McLean has them, but boy, when they look at you like that, that's <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, you know? <clears throat> so I shook his hand. I said, well, have a nice Christmas and New Year's. And he shook my hand, and then I turned away, and, I, and he, he held on. And I turned back, and when I turned back, my eyes met his, and his had filled with tears, and he was looking straight at me, and he had that look that he was looking straight at me, through me, <laughs> right clear to the back door of the church. And I just looked at him like, you know, well, what are you doing, you know? And, of course, I, I could see he was being touched. And with that, I saw him take his coat and reach in his back pocket, you know? And uh, I knew exactly what he, where he was going. He was going for his wallet. And, uh, and then I just closed my eyes. And then the Lord spoke to me. He said, watch what I do. And out of his wallet, Brother Green pulled a 50, a 5, and an O, okay? He said... That's one five that I've given you back ten times, you know. And then Brother Green looked at me again, and he took out another 50. And he said, you know, regardless of what you think, I can take what you give me, 
and I can multiply it in a matter of seconds. He had spoken to Brothers Green's heart unknowingly, but the, the bottom line to that is, you see, I had prayed, and the reason I didn't want to give that $5 up at that moment, I said, God, I never even took my parents out for a dinner. I, I, they're always taking me out. I want to take them out. And I took that $100 that he gave me, and I said, Brother Green, I'm going to buy my parents a dinner. And I took them to a fancy restaurant, one of the best in town, and that was the last meal I ever brought my parents together because my mother died that following May. I took a picture of that fifty hundred dollars, and on the back of that picture, I wrote, lest I ever should forget what God can do in a matter of seconds. So, you know, uh, uh, motivation. And being internally motivated. And, of course, love is the greatest motivator that there is. And when you love God, you want to work for God. You want to witness. And... Uh, uh, Sister McLean and I were talking last night on the way home from the restaurant and something she was talking about the burden of her heart about holiness and about standards and about keeping to the old paths just gripped my heart and uh, I thought about this message today and I, and I wanted to, to do it for you and uh, to remind you that if you look around we're all in the church I imagine all of us here are but there's, there's empty seats next to you there are backsliders that should be here, they're not here. There are lukewarm saints that should be here, and they're not here. You know, there are friends of ours that are not saved. You know, my family, you know, nieces and nephews, and your grandchildren, your sons and your daughters, or your stepchildren, the friends that you work with, the people you live next door to with, the ones you go to school with. You know, and this world seems to be on such a, a destructional path, and, and we just sit here basking in the glory of what God has given us. And yet outside those doors, yes, there's stressors, people, places, and things, and they don't know any better. And they turn to the world to try to fulfill their needs. And, and Sister uh, McLean told me last night, it was a beautiful expression, when we get shallow in the Holy Ghost, then, we, then you ever notice that when people are shallow in the Holy Ghost, they start to fill that void back with worldly things? Does any wonder why some of us sometimes we, you see people letting down on their standards and they're letting down on the old past? That's a sign that they're shallow in the Holy Ghost. And, but the void is still there, but the devil has tricked them. And why we sit back sometimes and letting other people pray for people at the altars. And, while I, and, I, and that this is, I'm talking to myself now, while I sit back and, and let people just, uh, you know, just, just go. You know, I mean, I talk to a lot of worldly people, but I'm not saving anybody, you know. So I hope I touch somebody's heart and maybe give them something to think about. But really, in reality, what, you know, it's just a way for me to make some money and to sustain myself. And all the time, hell is enlarging herself. Hell is enlarging itself. And uh, without measure. In other words, you can't measure how big it's getting. You know, so I want to provide you with some internal motivation today, something that when you leave here that you can take with you. Because I believe that there are three souls that cry to us today. Three souls that cry out loud, but, but only one can we hear, really. I want you to turn on your, uh, your spiritual ears. I want you to open up your spiritual eyes there's three souls that crieth 
And they're crying out to you. And God, in his wonderful mercy towards us, has shut off two of those cries because we could not stand to hear them. But there's only one soul that actually in the physical, in our spiritualness, we can hear. And if you need a motivation to live for God, if you need a motivation to work for God, I hope that something that can be said and done in the next few minutes will provide you with that motivation. Sister Marion, are you going to get dramatic? I, I, I can't get dramatic enough. But I want you to listen to the souls that cry to you today and let it be your motivation to work for God, to live for God, to stand firm in the foundations, you know, uh, of, of the truth that you have and not to waver. I love what Yvonne said today when she was talking about her children and she looks at those, well, those are the cutest little boys, I'm telling you. They sit right down the pew for me and when I see those little ties on and they just, oh, don't I look good, you know? And that little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy has got a touch on his life and he, he can preach, you know, and he's preaching sermons, I imagine, at home that would just knock your socks off, you know. He's a, his name, I guess, should be Samuel, really. So, but let, so I, I look at that and I say, your kids, you know, regardless of what you go through, see if this can't today be your motivation. For well, there's uh, three souls that crieth to you, and the. Uh, but again, I said that we really can't hear them in our natural ear because if we did, we would we would uh, go insane, or we would. Uh, we wouldn't be able to bear it. So I want to present to you the first soul that crieth. And that's the soul that's in hell today. You can't hear this, because if you did, you would, you'd go insane with the, you know, the agony and the pain that they're in. So God has shut our ears to that. So... It's in hell. In total torment, in everlasting fire, that soul that belongs to God lived in a body of a man or a woman or a young person. It walked the face of the earth at one time sat on pews such as this, and the soul inside that body cried to be brought back to its maker, but now it lives in hell.
then the other soul that cries cries to us from from the very gates of heaven and we can't we can't hear we can't hear that cry either because if we did we'd want to go there because it would be so beautiful oh it would be so wonderful oh to walk on the streets of gold those souls those souls resided in bodies men and women and children and oh filled with the Holy Ghost baptized in his name received up in the glory to ever be with their Savior say Hosanna Hosanna glory be to God hallelujah and to hear the hosts of the angels singing the cherubims and the seraphims and all the gates of pearl the jasmine the crystal sea oh the mansion oh to walk through the rooms oh and they cry out their praises to the lamb for sinners slain they love to be around the throne we don't hear that cry because if we did we would be of no earthly good so God shuts our minds that the sound of that soul as good and as wonderful as it may be because it would be too beautiful for us we would long to be there to be with the one who died for us who resurrected from his grave who overcame death, hell and the grave for us such a beautiful beautiful sound the praises of God going up as a sweet incense in his nostrils the one that they live for all their life we can't hear the cry of that soul but it's still now we don't hear those first two because you know that if you heard the torment of hell you know we'd go insane thinking about our lost loved ones there thinking of people that we knew backsliders we don't hear that and we don't hear the, the, the cry of the ones in heaven because it'd be too beautiful for us we wouldn't pay any attention So the only soul that cries to us today that we are allowed to hear in our spiritual eyes is the soul on its way to hell. No! No! No, don't let me go! Don't let me go! Please don't let me go there! Please don't let me go there. No, don't let me go there. No, this pulling for me. No, no. Oh, God. Oh, God, take me. Oh, God, please don't let this soul go to hell. Please. Please. Oh, I beg you. I beg you. Oh, no. I want to go to my creator. Take me to my creator. Please. Can't you see me? Can't you hear me? I'm sorry. I'm trapped in a body. A body that's living in the world. A body that doesn't know any better. A body that takes me to all horrible, terrible places. Oh, I forget. 
that's the only soul you can hear. The only soul you can hear. The one on its way to hell. Trapped in bodies. Don't know any better. And we know the truth. We don't share it. We don't live it. And we're selling out. The hell is enlarging itself. Give me ears to hear. Give me eyes to see. Oh God, let me be sensitive. Let me be sensitive, Lord. Oh God, I get so carried away with the cares of this world and achieving and doing and being that I can't hear the sound of the soul that stands even next to me and says, I want what you have. I want to go back to God. Oh, oh God. Help me, Lord. Help me, God. Let me remind myself that hell is preparing a place for them as well. Oh, Jesus. Let me be the light at the end of their dark pathway. Oh, God, help. Resurrect something in me, God. Resurrect something in me. Oh, if I have the words to return. Can I not share them? Oh, God. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Jesus. I ended early. So that you could do what you need to do now. God's talking to your heart. We have time to pray. We have time to renew. We have time to get internally motivated all over again. Stand to your feet. Pray. With... We've got about 20 minutes. I'm not going to talk anymore. We're just going to sing. You do what God wants you to do. Take my hands, Lord. Take my feet. Touch my heart, Lord. Speak through me. You can use anything, Lord. You can use me.
one day, as this old man with his worn-out sandals stood on the crest of a hill, the Lord spoke to him. He said, raise your eyes and look from the place you're standing. Look north, look south, look east, look west. All the land, as far as you can see, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants forever. Then the Lord gave a command. He said, arise and walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Notice that Abraham's sandaled feet had to walk over the land to possess. The subject for my little short lesson today is entitled, These Shoes Are Made for Walking. Everybody say shoes. Now God incorporated into his plan a very strange law known as the law of possession. Now I don't know why he did it. You know, he didn't put me on his planning committee. I have no idea why he put this in, but I guess he had his reasons. And it's a very interesting law. And we find it threaded from Genesis to Revelation. The law of possession had to do with shoes. One man would take off his shoe and give it to another when he relinquished ownership for land. Okay, now, you will remember an incident like this in the Bible in the book of Ruth. It says, now this was the manner of the former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. And you will remember that this was what happened with Ruth and Boaz. Boaz wanted Ruth for his beautiful wife, but he had to buy some land from the kinsmen of Ruth to get beautiful Ruth as a bonus. So the Bible says, Therefore the kinsman of Boaz said, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Now, you've got to remember that rule. If you don't remember that rule, nothing else in this whole thing is going to make sense, okay? But if you'll remember that rule, I'm going to show you something going to blow you away. Okay, so about four centuries after Abraham was dead and gone, there was a man leading a flock of sheep on the backside of the desert, and he came to a mountain. It was Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. All of a sudden, he stopped dead in his tracks because right in front of him was a burning bush that wasn't burning at all. And and he goes, well, I just have to investigate and see why this unique bush that's burning isn't really burning. And so he got to one side and he looked a little closer. And right out of the bush, the Lord called him and said, Moses, Moses. Sir, don't come a step closer. Take off your sheep. This is holy ground. This is my mountain. You take off your shoe and give it to me because it's my mountain. I possess it. You give up your shoes to me. <laughs> okay, let me read you about it. And he said, Draw not my thither, put off thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. So Moses' shoes had to come off, admitting that all possession of that mountain was God. It didn't belong to Moses. It didn't belong to Abraham. It didn't belong to the Israelites. It belonged to God. It was the Ten Commandment mountain. Okay, let's go. So after Moses died, there was a leader named Joshua that had his shoes on, marching through the land, possessing everywhere that the soles of those shoes trod. But he came to Jericho. And there stood a man with a sword drawn. And Joshua said, Are you a friend or a foe? 
I don't want to know that too. <laughs> and he said, I have come to be your captain. He said, oh, 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 what do you want me to do? And he said, take your shoe off. The, this place belongs to the Lord. Let me read it to you. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. And Joshua did so. <laughs> this was the only time Joshua had to take his shoe off. Why? Because Jericho was the first fruit, the tithe of the land, and as such, God had asked it be his. Everything else hereafter would belong to Joshua and the children of Israel, but this one city belonged to God, so Joshua had to take off his shoe and give it to the angel. Uh-huh, this is your land. You possess it. <laughs> sure, Lord, here's my shoe. <laughs> Jericho's yours. Okay. Now, Jezebel thought that her shoes were made for walking. I mean, she trampled over the prophets. She trampled over God's word. She trampled over Naboth's vineyard, possessing everywhere she went. Or so she thought. But there's a scripture in 2 Kings, oh, my, my, that I want to read. And when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Oh, when the hearse went to pick up old Jesse for the funeral, she was barefooted. Her possessing days were over. God had stripped her of her shoes when she became a Gainsberger for the neighborhood dog. Okay. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. The great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold in his breast, and his arms of silver, and his belly, and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part iron and part clay. Now that image represented the kingdoms of the world. You know, I've always imagined this big, proud statue standing. Maybe his arms all akimbo like this, you know. I possess the world. Tall as the skyscraper. Then I imagine, you know, maybe he just, yeah, this is my world. But as you begin to look down, 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 you come to the monster's feet. And what do you see? Toes of iron and clay, but no shoes on them. He didn't possess the world. He's barefooted. Someone else possessed the world. Oh, I love this story about that little stone that wiggled itself loose from its place and rolled up and smoked that old shoeless thing on its feet and, and it began to grow and grow and grow and come a big mountain and fill the whole earth. And then with the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chafe of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away. There was no place found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Ah, that image didn't possess anything. Mmm. Then into our world came a man who had every right to possess the earth because he made it. His name was Jesus. So when John, talking to the people down by Jordan's River, was baptizing people, he said, okay, there's one coming after me whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unload. I can't take off the conqueror's shoes. He's the possessor. I'm just the forerunner. Then in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent out 12 men. He said, don't take anything for your journey. Don't take a purse. Don't take bread. Don't take money. But this is what he said. Be shod. Take shoes. I'm sending you out to conquer. Put on your conquering shoes and walk over the land. And we find the results in Mark 6 and 13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. When, but listen to this. When Jesus went to the cross, Roman soldiers 
took his shoes. They took them off for crucifixion. And I can imagine those soldiers at the foot of the cross, and one of them says, Who wants these little worn-out sandals? Uh, I don't want them. I want that robe. I want that seamless robe. The Bible mentions the other items of clothing, but it does not tell us what became of his shoes. It really doesn't matter, though, because he didn't need them anymore. He performed his last miracle while on earth in fleshly form. He cleansed his last leper. He cast out his last devil. He healed the last cripple. And after today, he was through with earthly sandals. After his resurrection, he never performed another earthly miracle in person. They didn't take his shoes. He gave them up. Okay. Oh, my, it's getting better. It, and it's going to get better yet. Peter lay in prison. He was chained between two stalwart soldiers with 16 other soldiers posted around to make sure he didn't get away. You know, I've always thought that was real ironic. 18 men guarding one little preacher. You know, you'd have thought the little preacher killed king, but in fact, they killed the king. Tomorrow is hustle bye-bye for Peter. They were going to kill him. And here he is down to sleep. I mean, can you imagine being asleep when you know you're going to get your head lopped off the next day? And, and he is facing execution, and here he is, sound asleep. And he's sleeping so soundly that a mere touch or a call of his name wouldn't wake him up. Says the angel had to smite him. Hit him. He had to hit Peter. Peter, get up and get dressed, boy. And listen to this. The angel says, put on your shoes. With those shoes on, you're fixing to possess you a big iron gate, boy. Oh, he says, what a nice dream. Oh, what a nice dream. But it was no dream. He was free, possessing cells, possessing locked doors, possessing a big city gate with his possession shoes on. Now I want to read you something. God promised that as long as we keep our gospel shoes on, we can triumph over anything. Listen to this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take you on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth, having the breastplate on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Oh, mama, with our gospel shoes on, we can triumph over principalities, over powers, over the rulers of darkness, even over spiritual wickedness in high places. My, what these shoes can't do. There's no power can withstand our gospel shoes. Walk on your problems. Walk on your fears. Walk on your tribulations. Walk on demons. These gospel shoes are made for walking. You're barefooted, Satan. We have the shoes of possession in the spirit world, for greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. And like the children of Israel, whose shoes never wore out for 40 years in the wilderness, all the way from Egypt to Canaan's land, our gospel shoes will never wear out. They're durable. Lions can't eat them. Fire can't burn them. Waters can't drown them. They'll last us all the way from here to go. Proverbs tells us a man speaketh with his feet. We choose whether to wear the gospel shoes or not. And it's, it's really dangerous to go barefooted. I, I know. I, I, when I was young, I was trying to ride a bicycle, didn't have any shoes on, crawled up on the handlebars, got my heel tangled up in the spokes, and lo, I got injured. And no, uh, it's dangerous to be barefooted. Remember the prodigal had his shoes on at one time. 
but he lost them through a sinful life of righteous living. Sin took his shoes away from him. He thought his money, his youth, his popularity would conquer the world, but instead the world conquered him. A story I'll repeat today. So standing in the hog pen barefooted, he decides it's time to go home. And when that dear old father saw him coming and saw that he had no shoes on, he commanded the servant, put shoes on his feet. Okay, we're fixing to wind it up. Hey, hey, we're fixing to show you this beautiful bow knot. Sister, get me ready with the key of G. Here's the bow knot. Oh, this is pretty. <laughs> I love it. God let John the Revelator look into the future. He saw all sorts of things. He saw foundations and rivers and the tree of life and the streets of gold and 12 gates and 24 elders and 48 angels and an innumerable host. Oh, what a sight. It was the sight that defied description. John got to peek into the holy city, our eternal home. Then John, listen to this, saw Jesus. His hair was snowy white, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like glowing brass. He had no shoes on his feet. Okay, church, he's saying. <laughs> okay, church, look, I got my shoes off for you. This is heaven. This is your possession. <laughs> this is your possession. Come on. Come on in. This is your home. You possess it for all eternity. Look, I made it for you. So put all your golden shoes and march all over heaven for a million years. Hallelujah. It's all yours. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo, I can't wait to get my size 12 golden slippers on and walk all over heaven because it's my possession. He took his shoes off for me and said, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. When I lay my burden down, glory, glory. Glory, glory.